that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca. Today, we'll critically examine the role of artists, galleries, and boutiques in processes of neighborhood change, a topic which one could devote an entire lifetime to study, um, but we'll try to unpack uh, the role of the artist in urban change in a one-hour program. Uh, we'll look at the issues from four perspectives, the gallery curator, the urban scholar, the city official, and the neighborhood activist. So this is The City, uh, here on CITR 101.9 FM, syndicated on cjsf.ca, um, and we've got a lot on the program, so stay with us. The inner city figures prominently into art milieus, providing convenience to the downtown, proximity to a consumer base, and institutional support, galleries, critics, and educators. Artists are attracted to marginal spaces of the downtown for their central location, social tolerance, aesthetic, and monetary appeal. Bain uses the term improvisational spaces to characterize the unordered quality of these areas and their openness to multiple usage. Artist locations are typically described as edgy, rundown, and experimental. In rejecting contrived and overly planned spaces, David Lay uh, of the UBC Department of Geography observes that artists are attracted to authentic spaces of the urban. In a series of interviews conducted by David Lay with artists in Vancouver, authenticity emerges as a desired urban trait for its perceived openness. As one sculptor suggests, every artist is an anthropologist unveiling cultures. It helps to get some distance on the culture in an environment which does not share all of its presuppositions in an old area, socially diverse, including poverty groups. Similarly, as Cameron and Kofi explain, quote, what the artist values and valorizes is more than the aesthetics of the old urban quarter. The society and culture of a working class neighborhood, especially where this includes ethnic diversity, attracts the artists as it repels the conventional middle classes. Areas which house a high number of artists provide important networks for experimentation and social interaction, unexpected and planned. In addition to the aesthetic and atmospheric elements that attracts artists to particular urban spaces, artists are attracted to a range of building types, from derelict warehouses, spaces, to Victorian row houses. Buildings which offer appropriate conditions for live work and performance space based on generous space, lighting, high ceilings, and low rent are valued for their aesthetics and functionality for the arts community. Following the decline of industrial manufacturing and the rise of the service sector, a great number of vacant and un underused industrial spaces remain in the inner cities of North America and Europe. The adaptive reuse of industrial architecture for artistic purposes, artistic production, consumption, and distribution is well documented in the literature. For example, when artists took up residence in the declining industrial districts of Soho, New York, they popularized the aesthetic of industrial chic. The mass market popularity of industrial chic allowed a transference of the image value for, from industrial spaces to contemporary apartments and condominiums which advertised loft living for middle-class tastes. 
Consequently, the mass market appeal of loft living is rarely affordable or popular amongst artists for whom, from whom this aesthetic was originally derived. Older housing stock in the inner city is also considered to be an attractive location for some artists and galleries, given the generous space, cheap rents, and aesthetic appeal. The vulnerability of artists within the gentrification process, while tied to property values and aesthetics, also extends into the realm of urban planning. Loft spaces are desired by artists for their, for their live-work potential, but for the most part, industrial spaces are not zoned for residential or commercial purposes. This means that unless land uses, uses for a particular parcel or area of land are transferred or relaxed, artists are placed in a tenuous position, risking evic- eviction. These evictions resulting from zoning were witnessed in earlier periods when the multiplying effects of the arts were not understood. Zoning is increasingly relaxed in areas to promote artistic presence as a way of regenerating derelict lands. And this is Vanessa Matthews, and she continues in her article, Aestheticizing Space. According to Lay, artists work as as a colonizing arm for the middle class, opening up new spaces of the inner city through the image and identity attached to their lifestyle and productions. Similarly, reference to the pioneer function of artists responds to the ability of this community to tame and naturalize the real estate market. The ability for artists to alter space in symbolic and physical ways, including renovations using their own labor, a process labeled sweat equity, makes them an attractive ingredient in revival initiatives. Drawn to the milieu created by the arts community and attracted to the property investment potential, a variety of users are attributed as as successors in the process. As David Lay documents, quote, typically social and cultural professional and pre-professionals are early successors to artists, including such cultural producers as intellectuals and students, journalists and other media workers and educators to be followed by professionals with greater economic capital, such as lawyers and medical practitioners, and finally by business people and capitalists. This is not necessarily the exact succession that takes place in all cases of gentrification. While experiential art galleries, arts organizations, and small collectives may also be present in the early stages of the process, commercial art galleries often enter into art spaces when consumer demand is high. In this way, commercial art galleries often work as successors to artists, forcing rents to increase and displacement to occur. As Mollich and Trexen suggest, while there is generally a level of sympathy amongst commentators when artists enter into a space, there is less sympathy when art galleries enter into the cycle. Following the refashioning of space, artists are often driven out as those with greater purchasing power take possession of local cultural forms. This can result from rising rents, as well as a shift in atmosphere. And again, that's Vanessa Matthews writing in her article published in Geography Compass, Aestheticizing Space, Art, Gentrification, and the City. And there's one academic perspective uh, from someone studying uh, these trends um, and what we see uh, transforming inner cities. And now we go to Sharon Zukin, and she is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and the City University of New York's Graduate Center. And uh, she's talking about similar processes, um, again, from another perspective. You know, one of the interesting things about this whole process that draws more and more people to the the so-called authentic neighborhoods is the entrepreneurial businesses that are opened up by creative people to cater to their own community. And usually these are small businesses that provide services or provide goods that um, the new residents culturally crave they have no intention of driving out old businesses, uh, but they are really visible presences on the street. And they signal that these areas of the city are now safe for bigger real estate development. You know, we used to think that it was the presence of artists that led to gentrification, but I really think that it's the presence of the businesses that artists create art galleries, performance spaces, bars, restaurants, uh, that really, boutiques, that really attract people from a larger public, first as visitors and then as would-be residents. And again, Professor Sharon Zukin of Brooklyn College and the City University of New York 
um, talking about these issues. And now we go to another perspective, um, the view from uh, the gallery curator, the art gallery curator. And um, this is Tara Hogue, um, and she is a curator with the GAM Gallery at 110 East Hastings in Vancouver's downtown east side. And uh, this is uh, our conversation. My name is Tara Hogue, and... Um, I'm a curator at the GAM gallery, but we, uh, there's four of us that actually run the gallery and we run it very collectively. So we each wear sort of different hats depending on our skill sets, but we make decisions all together and work as a team largely. So the organization of the GAM is fairly loose in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me specifically about uh, the GAM and when it was established and um, a little bit of the context of that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we opened the GAM in December 2009, and the four of us that run the gallery were all from Alberta originally, and we've slowly moved out here over the past oh, six or seven years. Um, a couple of us to um, go to art school, um, myself to do my master's at UBC. And we have always talked about working together in uh, the arts and were interested in opening a space and actually sort of fell into this space. Um, we had seen it in during during the Swarm event in September of 2009 and saw that it came up for rent. And so we decided just to sort of go for it without too much planning. (laughs) Certainly in the downtown east side, things are shifting and we've seen, uh, for example, the Woodward's uh, redevelopment is is an example of that shift um, in the urban environment. And even the the block across the street has dramatically changed um, from even you know th- you know three to five years ago. Um, do you do you notice? I mean, I guess first, do you see these changes, and what what do you see going on? Mm-hmm. Especially in the last year, things have really sped up, and some things are. I'm really excited about around the corner from where we are. There's a set of three new businesses that are going in. There's a new art gallery there. And I see more spaces popping up around the blocks of of Maine and Hastings area. There's also the sequel 138 development that's going into the Pantages, the old Pantages space, which is right down the street from us. And that's an interesting one because they really market towards they really market to artists and they've they've had artists on the campaign to uh, promote that project actually. Where does the GAM stand on that very development? Uh, I have I have really mixed feelings about it. Um, I've I'm on their mailing list, so they send me their promotional materials, <laughs> but I. I I don't know. It's it's so slanted towards towards press talk, and I'm I'm really I'm really wary of it. I I know that they have mandated some some low income housing in that, and that they have raised money all by themselves. They're not you know um, relying on any any grant money. Um, I it's such a complicated and tough issue. And I know that on one level, the GAM is part of it because we are, you know, we are the bastions of gentrification, as they say, on the one hand. But then on the other hand, that seems like an easy sort of scapegoat. (laughs) Can you talk more about that? Um, Yeah, well, I think that there's been... When we first opened, there was an article published in the Taiyi about phantom galleries in this part of the city, which are where we were characterized as a pop-up space that's hard to see, um, and that you know that the window dressings that we afford on on the street sort of lead the way for development. And I know that um, you know it's it's undeniable that 
that art and artistic production today is very much linked to high capitalism. Um, but at the same time, um, we should be careful to differentiate between different types of artistic practices. Uh, and I would, you know, strongly argue that the that the gam is not part of of that system of capital in any way. We don't make any money. Um, and and I think that we're trying to foster s something else here. And I mean, we have a good relationship with the people, with a lot of people in the neighborhood. Um, not that we're doing any any sort of active community outreach, which is, you know, m maybe that's something that we should be doing. Maybe that's slightly irresponsible of us, but there's also only so much time that we have. We all work steady jobs <laughs> besides doing this. So I don't know. I, I guess that I have, I have mixed feelings about the whole situation and where I stand in it. Yeah, I think it's, it's challenging because I think in some ways um, galleries and boutiques, they certainly create... Um, an aesthetic environment in mm -hmm. neighborhoods that can be very attractive to higher income groups mm -hmm. who and developers who want into that neighborhood um, and it's it's very difficult and it's I think you explained it and you d dissected it very well it's very tricky yeah. because you're also looking for affordable space in this city mm -hmm. um, what I guess what are the alternatives like, is this, is this the ideal neighborhood to be in? Well, for, uh, for us, this space was such an opportunity when we saw it. I should say that the building that we're in is, is called Acme Studios, and it's owned by David Dupre, who um, runs the Rickshaw Theater and owns a or he actually leases this building. He's not the owner, but he runs a number of other buildings that have studio spaces in them. And he, they have been for a long time, some of the more affordable studio spaces in Vancouver. And, you know, David is a businessman, but he's also a great supporter of, of the arts. And I think that that, uh, situation in terms of a relationship is is really ideal for us to be in, and I think that the community of artists in the downtown east side also also makes it ideal for us. Uh, and the the culture of the neighborhood and the community that that lives here is is part of that too and and we're a part of that community as well and i don't know what the alternatives are <laughs> do you think going back to discussing um you know being how are you like how are you accessible to the the community and is it an accessible space and do you partake in um you know community struggles and take part in, in community issues. Do you think, what is the role of the artist and um, galleries in this neighborhood? Or, or, or I guess, first of all, is there some, is there responsibility or um, do you play a role in those anti-gentrification battles or struggles within the city? And where does, where does the artist fit into that? Mm -hmm. I think artists, you know, historically have been outspoken critics on a, on all number of social issues. And we've definitely um we've definitely had programming in the gallery towards that and towards community projects. Um but also we have we have to we feel that we have to support emerging artist culture in Vancouver uh, generally and while while artistic practices has you know for forever been ideological and been political it's also not necessarily the place to wage political struggles 
on any on uh on an action based level i guess i would say and um personally you know as i was saying i do have really mixed feelings about about that word gentrification in relation to the neighborhood and i'm very aware of the the issues and the um the discussions that are going on here um i haven't personally taken um taken part in many of them publicly but I've had my head buried as a student for two years, so I'm I'm just emerging into the real world right now. So, so things are shifting for me too. <laughs> One of the big the big discussions and um, I guess questions is uh, whether the downtown east side should remain a predominantly lower income neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certainly people of different pro- political persuasions, but on the right, it would be this neighborhood should be socially mixed. And often um, that can be language for we want, you know, the highest use value. Um, and we want, if that means condos, to, to bring, you know, social mix, then so be it. Mm-hmm. And on the left, that would be, you know, <laughs> describing that language as, you know, this sort of that this neighborhood should remain for the people that it, that are here and not displace those people. Mm-hmm. Do you think, with that in mind, do you think the downtown east side should remain a predominantly low-income neighborhood? And, and I know it's difficult to speak for everyone involved mm-hmm. in the GAM, but um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, so, like, this neighborhood is socially mixed already. Bob Rennie has his offices not even a block from where we are. And, you know, whether that is a product of gentrification or not, it is a fact. And um, the GAM is located beside um, a single-room occupancy-mandated building, and I can't remember exactly how long their lease is for, but it's for, I, th- I think my building manager said nine or ten years or so. So, um, and I think that that is really important. And I, I, do, th- I do think that those, um, those spaces need to stay the way they are. And at least for now, they are going to. And if the history of, of you know, the what I know of it, at least, of the various developments that have tried to bulldoze Strathcona and and other, other instances like that. It goes to show you that people in this neighborhood and the community that is, is here will fight very hard for um, keeping, um, keeping the social values that they have intact and I, I definitely agree with that. I think that any any sort of development that happens here needs to be responsible. I also think that um, that having social social housing in in other parts of the world has been a way to ghettoize people as well. So, and you know, here again is the complication of the issue. So well, also. Um so cultural services at the city of Vancouver, one of their strategies is also to uh, buy up warehouse space. Right. And to, I don't know if you've heard of this as well, but to then uh, lease that out as a city-owned um, property mm-hmm. um, and create production space and, I assume, gallery space as well. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that a strategy? Is you know, And if that's in a low-income neighborhood, what are those class dynamics and I guess just your thoughts on that as well. Well I know that um, I know that there's the the Railtown Studios area has some studio live work type spaces and I've I've heard of some of the warehouse um, developments that have been happening and those are really um, in large part in very industrial type areas and you know, I think that those types of 
areas have always been well suited for artistic practice. And that seems to me to be a bit more of a responsible Mm -hmm. way for the city to go about things because it has a lot less to do with um, benefiting the developers where the developer is getting money from the city to put in, you know, cheap gallery or retail space and then raking in all of the profits. <laughs> well, I mean, also throwing into the mix the the ability that the city, they have the ability to approve rezonings. And so, mm-hmm. you know, often you can have an industrial area, but then, you know, somebody owns land and it can get rezoned. That, I'm not saying that's yeah, your, no, your problem at all, <laughs> but certainly that, that can be... And uh, this is the city on CITR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF.ca and CJSF 90.1 FM. And uh, on the program, we're critically examining the role of artists, art galleries, boutiques, and neighborhood change um, and looking at these processes and getting um, perspectives from a number of different people. And you just heard from Tara Hogue. And uh, she's a curator at the GAM Gallery in Vancouver's downtown east side. Um, Vancouver's um, actually the lowest income neighborhood um, in Canada. So and next, uh, we hear from Harvey Mollich, professor of social and cultural analysis at New York University um, on uh, these very issues as well. Some of your research has looked at uh, the role of um, artists and boutiques and art spaces, art galleries, Mm -hmm. um, and processes of neighborhood change, gentrification, um, Mm -hmm. specifically in Chelsea and Soho. Mm -hmm. Um, To what extent do do artists um, um, perhaps uh, unintentionally play a role in, in neighborhood change and uh, the mm-hmm. gentrification of certain places. Artists are are are, are guilty, um, and so are graduate students, especially in the social sciences and uh, literature, um, because uh, they're very cool. They've traveled all around the world. Uh, they bring better food, um, better coffee, um, and then come the advertising uh, agency uh, people. Um, and before you're done, uh, as in New York, you have the uh, barons of Wall Street who want to live a groovy life. And so that's the process. And um, uh, one way of approaching it is to uh, um, beat up the artists on the street. I like them. And um, one of the things I like about this whole um, uh, thrust of enthusiasm for the creative economy as it's called, of which this is the land use um, element or one of the land use aspects, is that um, it moves uh, dignity and power um, uh, away from let's say from the extractive industries, from the oil companies uh, from uh, well from the auto industry, from cement uh, but let's use the oil companies since they're the, the, the most menacing. Um, I'll take the artists anytime. So I, um, if I, in a forced choice situation, which we do live in, by the way, uh, all our choices are forced choices. Uh, I, uh, I go with the creative economy. What about the American dream? Do uh, whatever the, you want. Yeah, the American dream, right, which is to not live at all uh, in that sense. So, um, so I'm okay with it. Um, the question is then, um, since you're rejuvenating the neighborhood, um, who's paying for the rejuvenation? In some cities, money is taken out of the general fund that would otherwise go to working class ch- people, schools, welfare, or whatever, to make these neighborhoods prettier. Uh, and that's something that you have to have a constant jaundiced eye on because uh, these artists are only good. I mean, the whole ideology of it is they bring prosperity. Well, if they bring prosperity, then tax it mm-hmm. and, again, get a piece of that action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, either through uh, a real estate transfer tax, um, through a, um, you know, a- anytime anybody repaints the front door uh, in a tasteful color, they have to pay something. Uh, and, in, and in every espresso, that's the way to do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Every a luxury lo- espresso every, tax. A luxury, yeah, lu- the luxury lot, lot, latte. latte tax. 
Um, but you've got to get a way to uh, find a way to um, uh, use that for um, what someone here in New York, I was a finance person I, I was talking to, and I was asking about well, the people who, the plumbers and whatnot, and she said, oh, you mean the support New York? So, you know, that's, that's yeah, okay, yeah, the support New York. Uh, you ha- well, you have to do something for support New York. This is more just an anecdote, but it is... It's certainly easy to see how a place like Williamsburg, which is, um, for those unfamiliar with it, just right across into Brooklyn from Manhattan, but has dramatically changed over the last, what, 20, 20 years? Yes, right. Even maybe less. Um, uh-huh. To now go from, you know, full of, full of artists and, and, uh, and hipsters, not, not mm-hmm. necessarily wealthy people, right. um, but to being a place where uh, real estate developers want to put... Uh, towers with condos, so it's it's certainly it's certainly something that you know. I think for a lot of artists, they say, "Well, what's the alternative? The rent's cheaper here." Right. Yeah, and 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 they they they're right, and um, and that's why they do it. And um, this is the mix, the particular mix of the social and the economic that uh, we live in. As catastrophes go, I'm I'm I'm, I'm okay. With it, in other words, I think it's uh, it's somewhat uh, irritating or uh, noteworthy. But here, here, here's some other aspects. First of all, when these neighborhoods pick up in prosperity, some of these people who live in these neighborhoods, some of them have rent stabilization. They can't very easily be moved out. So that's one thing that goes on. Secondly, when the retail improves, they get better supermarkets and all of that sort of thing, and their life improves. Poor people like nice. It's, it's only graduate students in the humanities who like dirt. Gritty. Gritty, right. Real people like nice. Working class people, when you ask them what's, what, what, is their, uh, what is the bane of their existence, it's, it's crime, it's drugs, it's gangbangers, and signs of disrespect. And the graduate students who move in are not guilty of those things in any way that bothers them. Mm-hmm. But yet, ultimately, it, it aestheticizes and sanitizes the, the neighborhood to lead to these greater processes of social upgrading. Of right, but but living in the upgrading is is not necessarily dire, mm-hmm. and indeed can be good. It was interesting. I on this trip, I had a conversation with Fred Kent from the Project for Public Spaces, and um, a lot of my academic interest and in, um, and reading has been on processes of gentrification. And it was interesting to hear him say, "Well, there's a good gentrification and a bad gentrification, but at the end of the day, my feeling is someone is still getting displaced." Well, it depends what you mean by displaced. Yeah. If if you uh, live in this in this uh, unit, uh, and uh, it used to be worth uh, fifteen thousand dollars, and now somebody comes along and offers you one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and you leave, uh, have you been displaced? Is that the term you would want to use? Um, as opposed to people having no rights whatever to their, which also goes on. So maybe I would say there's good and bad gentrification in that sense of people who are pushed out. They have no rights. They don't own anything. Uh, they don't gain anything out of the, out of the process. So I think that's, um, that's a different thing. And the other good, bad gentrification is, again, the envelope in which it's occurring. If wealth is being created, um, the question for me is, are you getting a piece of it to then use for social purposes redistribution. and redistribution.
Frontrunner's 8th Annual Pride Run and Walk kicks off Pride Week, Saturday, July 28th, 2012. This 10-kilometer run, 4-kilometer walk in Stanley Park raises money for local charity out in schools, bringing awareness and fighting bullying and homophobia in primary and secondary schools in Canada. Register as a team or individual for this fabulous event with incredible prizes for top finishers and the largest, fastest, and best-dressed teams. Join MLAs and all of your friends at the largest Pride Run and Walk ever. Support a great cause and have a blast. For more information or to register, visit www.vancouverfrontrunners.org. Queer FM Vancouver Reloaded and CITR 101.9 FM are proud media partners and supporters of the Pride Run and Walk. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to the Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Despite the fact that 8 in 10 Canadians are against warrantless and costly online spying, the government remains stubborn, set to cement this scheme into law. With their huge PR budget, they've unleashed a reckless and irresponsible campaign that suggests warrantless collection of our private data is on par with a phone book. We can't let them trick Canadians. Go to www.openmedia.ca now to find out what you can do to get involved and stop this smoke and mirrors campaign the government has started. This is The City on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, Burnaby, and CJSF.ca. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Today on the program, we're looking at issues of uh, neighborhood change and the role that artists play, um, and art galleries and boutiques, and a lot of these um, creative or seen as the creative economy, um, a lot of these different spaces and the role that this kind of retail um, or transformation of a neighborhood um, occurs and uh, the conditions under which it occurs. And we've been talking to a number of people with this and getting a number of different perspectives. Um, so already we've heard um, from um, urban scholars on this and um, an art gallery curator um, based in uh, from the GAM Gallery in Vancouver's downtown east side. And... Um, now we're going to hear from um, a senior city official. Um, you're going to hear from Richard Newworth, and he is the Director of Cultural Services at the City of Vancouver. Looking at neighborhoods specifically and looking at the nexus mm-hmm. of artistic, cultural production, art spaces, mm-hmm. and uh, neighborhood change or gentrification, um, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's the policy within your department and how do you, how do you evaluate or um, is there a process in place to, to think about the, the impacts it could, that cultural or artistic spaces or sort of the aestheticized um, environments that these places often create and the attractive environments that they create um, set in motion uh, a number of different things in terms of social upgrading in neighborhoods and in, in specifically in the context of the downtown east side, which um, mm-hmm. I think we can really see uh, this uh, quickening. Okay. Um, how, well, you know, I guess what the difficulty I have in terms of responding to that is that um, it, it, there's there's the issue of like gentrification in general, mm-hmm. which drives out people that um, have low incomes no matter what they're doing and you know and i'm not i'm not going to say that that doesn't occur i mean it certainly does occur um so 
you know, I, I would say in some ways, you know, there's my department and there's the city as a whole. So what are we doing as a city mm-hmm. to make sure that there's still a middle class here and that there's still, you know, it's not just the very rich or the very poor. I mean, so I, I would almost turn it around and say, you know, what, what do we do as a city in terms of affordability? Like, so there's the mayor's task force on housing affordability right now. And I think that's an example of where you're trying to look at systemically, how do you make the city affordable? Um, in terms of artists, um, you know, they certainly have, uh, make an area attractive. Um, I think that, you know, you can look at any city around the world practically where, um, artists are willing to go into an area that's not the best area in the world. And then, you know, they make it attractive and people come in and they get priced out of the market. Um, that's a, that's a challenge that I think every city faces. I think what Vancouver faces that's even more difficult is how geographically constrained we are and how um, little industrial land there is. So there's very few places to expand. So in, in places like Toronto, I mean, it just sprawls out further and further. Here, we're in a very limited area, and so how do you maintain uh, stock of affordable housing and affordable studio space um, within that? And I think that you know we're we're doing what we can uh, by trying to target um, you know setting aside buildings where at least for a certain period of time we can guarantee that 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 it will be you know we can guarantee rates that are in the affordability range of what typically artists pay for studios that are not just you know commercial rates that are outrageously high so that's you know that's where a lot of our emphasis has been lately has been in terms of we haven't focused so much on the lib side we've focused on the work side we've really focused on individual artist studios and artist production space because that's 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 what you know is um, it, it's something that we can target. It, it, whereas affordability in terms of living is something that affects everyone. Mm-hmm. So it's easier for us to address the work side of it. Specifically, though, what and I'm using an example of a of a current uh, project, the sequel 138 um, at Maine and Hastings, which the developer very explicitly um, used artists and uh, using, you know, marketing especially to artists in the neighborhood um, to get support for that and, and uh, try to rally people um, to get that, that permit approved. And it was ultimately. But mm-hmm. I guess what's, what are the links between cultural policy at the city and discussions with zoning and the planning department? And are those... Mm-hmm are those links and discussions about holistically thinking about who is the neighborhood for and, and how are different processes shaping these neighborhoods? Sure. I mean, I will say um, that I think that there's actually a fair amount of uh, discussion, collaboration, and integration of policy within the city. So, you know, some of the studios or some of the projects that are coming on board have been a result of some of these developments. Like we have uh, a, a development at Drake and Howe that's going to have 18 studio spaces in it. And so we and we work with the planning department in terms of when an opportunity arises to provide cultural space at an affordable rate for artists or arts organizations. It, that's very much part of city policy and I think we really think about that what what an individual developer does um, you know they may do their own thing but in terms of what what they need to provide to the city um, I think that we're pretty good about um, trying to look at where there are opportunities to provide Mm -hmm. cultural space I know at the rise public hearing you presented and and uh, mentioned that it's been a real struggle to lease um, existing city cultural space because arts group have um, financially are unable to really fit these spaces out. And I I guess Mm -hmm. more broadly is the idea of a brand new um, space for cultural production. Is that, 
going against very much the idea of like artists wanting to be in Strathcona where there is this sense of authentic urban space and does sort of the the more um the new development the you know fitting yourself into these new developments is that is that inherently one of the problems that it's not desired and it's also quite costly well, first of all, I, I would I would not agree with either of those statements. Okay. I mean, because like first of all, like that new development. I mean, the way that 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 the studio that I'm I'm talking about in terms of the Eaton Studios that are going to be in this development, like we the whole thing is is entirely fitted out. Uh, and it's got a facility reserve fund that will help pay for expenses mm-hmm. over you know a certain number of years. So. It's going to be very affordable. I mean, that that one is one that I don't have any concerns about. Mm-hmm. I have more concerns about some of the ones where we're trying to take city buildings that are vacant and you know providing raw shells to artists. Right. Um, uh, now, in terms of you know where um, where they are, you know, it's sort of like I know. Um, in fact, we've done mapping of artists and, and what we've found, and it's not surprising is that artists and, uh, and others have been migrating eastward. So, um, you know, in the early two thousands, um, the downtown east side had the largest concentration of artists in 2006. In that census, we, we don't have the 2011 yet. Right. In 2006, Grandview Woodlands had the highest percentage of artists. So, you know, the notion of... Um, Maybe Hastings Sunrise is 2011. It, it, it very <laughs> likely will be. And, and one of the spaces that we're looking at that we're going to be putting out is in uh, Renfrew Collingwood. I mean, so... I think that, you know, the notion of um, a sort of artist community or multiple communities, I think, is 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 valuable. I mean, I don't think that anyone wants to be, well, I'm not going to say that. People do want to be, you know, there is something to, to um, uh, having a... Uh, I don't know what the word is, but, uh, you know, having a mass of artists in one space in terms of just um, the creativity that is evoked when people are, you know, working closely with one another. And I think that in some of these places, hopefully that that will they'll become these incubators. The other one that we're doing is in an area that's heavily uh, both art artists in terms of uh, arts organizations as well as um, the the support uh, the kinds of uh, support things that that arts organizations or artists need like framers and things like that in in is the False Creek Flats and so one of the one of the buildings we're putting out is on Industrial Avenue. It's it's a highly uh, rough space, but it's the kind of space and it's in a location that a lot of people want. And that was Richard Newworth, and he is the Director of Cultural Services at the City of Vancouver. And uh, now we're going to go to um, uh, Wendy Peterson, and she is an organizer with the Carnegie Community Action Project, which is a project of the Carnegie Community Center Association, and they work primarily on uh, issues of housing, income, and land use in the downtown east side, um, and they're striving to keep uh, the downtown east side a low-income-friendly neighborhood. And we're going to go to Wendy's perspective on issues of neighborhood change and the role of artists, art galleries, and boutiques in these larger processes. Um, I wanted to ask you um, on a somewhat of a separate topic, um, mm-hmm. doing some uh, interviews with um, folks that are doing um, running art galleries and boutiques and um, cultural spaces in the downtown east side. Do you what's the Carnegie's position on this? Because it's certainly we're seeing um, it's not it's not new, but we're certainly seeing. Um, an incursion of of boutiques and art spaces and um, um, stores that are not necessarily accessible to 
the downtown east side, um, low-income neighborhood? Yeah, we're definitely against all forms of gentrification, including retail, artists, and boutique spaces, uh, because it create they create places where low-income people can't aren't can't participate in the economy, and also create um, places where people feel excluded and um, don't contribute benefit the low-income community at all. So we're we're we but but we would um, we would be okay maybe with some, but not until after we secure the tenure and the assets of the low-income community. Otherwise, it just is unfair and disrespectful. Yeah. It's a, there's no plan to preserve the housing here, then we're welcoming new people into the community that is, you know, being demolished. Yeah. Well, what's your not practical? <laughs> what's your take? I I spoke with Ivan a while back, but what's your take on the way that um, uh, sequel one thirty eight and um, the language around? Um, artists and this is you know really essentially a divide and conquer strategy by um the developer to use artists as um to to use their you know support for the project and and rally people around that well i guess i i don't believe that he has support from the artist the existing artist community in the mm-hmm. in the side, the low income artist community. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have support. He mm-hmm. doesn't have that support. And I think most of the art groups in the neighborhood have um signed on against it. Yeah. And don't want to be used in that way. I think the main problem is until we get our housing, people are there's gonna be a lot of bitterness and a lot of um uh, pushback and a lot of fighting. Yeah. What are what's, and if, if miraculously, if the the city and the senior government could build five thousand units of social housing to replace our hotels, I think. Uh, and if that was a for sure plan, and if they did other improvements to the neighborhood to make it safe for women and comfortable for Aboriginal people and or as or or um, safer for Aboriginal people and um, took, took the low-income community's needs seriously then I don't think we would be in this battle mm-hmm. and maybe there would be some room for some higher end stuff but not until we have our how do you just going back to all of the um, boutiques and art spaces that um, have popped up in recent years in the downtown east side mm-hmm. that are not, um, a, many of them not political um, in a way that they are there to stand in solidarity um, and oppose gentrification like in the what? neighborhood. Sorry? Like which places? Oh, like the, we've had a number of boutique um, stores open on Columbia. Um, yeah. That stretch. I, I guess my question is, how? What's? What is the message to people, and how do we engage in a discussion mm-hmm. when, for them, it's a it's a unique opportunity, and it's sort of portrayed as an emerging neighborhood, um, mm-hmm. even though yeah. they may not realize that they're playing a part in a larger scheme or a larger process, which makes mm-hmm. the neighborhood more um, more aesthetically pleasing for higher income groups to want to move in there. How do, how do we, how do we talk about that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I guess, um, well, I guess people need to learn what gentrification is and they need to be in solidarity with low income people. And they have to talk about class. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy for everybody to do. And artists need to understand that they, although we appreciate, we know that low-income artists and low-income students and low-income workers need housing in this neighborhood too, it shouldn't be at the expense of other people. 
and the uh, it shouldn't be at the expense of the community that lives here now. All right. Are there- and that was Wendy Peterson, and she's an organizer with the Carnegie Community Action Project. And um, we're about at the end of the show, and uh, this has been a uh, hopefully an interesting discussion, looking at the role of artists, um, boutiques, um, uh, retail, art galleries, um, a lot of the things that we consider part of the creative economy or um, uh, the creative industries, and looking at how... Uh, these, these processes um, are implicated in larger changes, neighborhood change, social upgrading, um, gentrification, and the class transformation of certain neighborhoods. So um, we took a number of perspectives, and um, in case you missed any of um, the earlier discussions, um, we talked to a number of, heard from a number of urban scholars on these issues. We heard from an art gallery curator, and we heard from a senior city official, and uh and lastly, you heard from Wendy Peterson, um, an activist um, in the downtown east side. And uh, you can find the full podcast at thecityfm.org um, and content related to this, um, as well as um, past podcasts and um, archives um, of other shows, past shows. So again, um, that's the website, um, and you've been tuning in at CITR um, 101.9 FM or CITR.ca, and also syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, cjsf.ca. And um, we're going to wrap up the show, but we're going to go out with the track um, from Talking Heads. And the track is called Artists Only. And um, if you want to find more on these issues, um, have some links off of the website, thecityfm.org. Um, and um, please join the discussion on Facebook. Um, on Twitter, you can find the city at uh, with the handle the city underscore FM. Find the city on Facebook, uh, the city um, critical urban discussions, and also, of course, all of this um, linked off of um, the city FM dot org. So, thanks for tuning in, and um, back next week for more critical urban discussions. <laughs>